Around the world right now, uh, the gospel is, is flourishing. We read about what's happening in China. We read about what's happening in South America. It is a, a pretty unbelievable move of God happening around the world. But you would not know it living here in Rhode Island. You would not know it living here in the West because the Western culture, the church, at least in Western culture, is in crisis. It's about a million young people who will walk away from the church, and the number one reason will be because it's simply not compelling. It's not going to be, I mean, I've read so much on this stuff. Like, it's not going to be sociological issues. It's actually not going to be theological debates, so that sometimes seems like it comes to the forefront. It's not going to be apologetics problems. It's just going to be that they don't find Jesus compelling in the argument is because there's, there's a lot of people through the church, a lot of people meeting Jesus. God hasn't stopped moving, but his bride, his mechanism for reaching the world just isn't compelling. And so we've got to get back and recover the heart of what the church is supposed to be. In this passage in Acts 2 that Jeremiah read at the beginning of our service, the account of Pentecost actually kind of gives us a bit of a blueprint. And it's a blueprint or like a play to run that we've been talking about ad nauseum for especially the last three or four years. So don't let that statement dissuade you from tuning in. Because I want to look again at what we see in this passage. God pouring out his spirit, doing what Jesus said earlier, which we'll go to his words in a moment, about what the spirit will be. The spirit will come and be my presence with you. Jesus, physical Jesus is going. Sometimes we talk about praying to Jesus. In some ways, that's a little bit of like a theological conundrum. Really, we are talking with the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus' presence with us. I try to explain this to my eight-year-old, and it goes over really well. It's a little bit, a little bit interesting. But we know God three in one. We know, and many of you know this firsthand, that Jesus, his presence with us, his spirit encouraging us and and leading us and giving us vision and empowering us. This is what it is to walk with God. And on Pentecost in Acts 2, we celebrate the day where God pours his spirit out. And then, and then at the end of Acts 2, we read about all of these practices that the church begins to do. And I think what we see in this passage is, again, this, this blueprint for what it is to be a church that can actually last another 10 years. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were praying. Suddenly a loud, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, as you know, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples, and this is what he's basically told them. Do not try kingdom mission on your own. And as has been said ad nauseum in this church, 
it seems like you could define the Western cultural moment right now as people who want the kingdom. They want human rights and they want love and they want generosity and they want to see poverty eradicated and they want to see true diversity and they want to see justice and they want to see a freeing sexual ethic. They want all these things, the things that are literally directly rooted in the Christian story, but they do not want the king to be the one to set what that looks like because we all know that love isn't just love. Love is something specific and we need to define it. Jesus is risen from the dead and he has told them, do not try kingdom mission on your own. Specifically, he talks to Peter. He's like, talks to Peter and basically you get the gist of Jesus and Peter's interaction. Peter, by the way, is sort of like, he's like the disciple who God's going to start his church through. And you almost hear the subtext of Jesus saying, look, Peter, I appreciate your heart, but I'm not a big fan of your follow through. Like, I've seen what Peter can do with the kingdom of God when Peter's in charge. And Jesus is like, you're going to need some power to accomplish the ministry that I have. So he says, go and pray for an outpouring of the spirit. And what God's going to do in this moment is he's going to shift from an external reality of the power of God to an internal reality of the power of God. And this is going to be the birth of new covenant reality, a new way that we relate to each other. The old covenant was primarily, not exclusively, but primarily external and distant. God is out there. God's on the mountain. God was in the temple. God's in the law. It's defined by you shall and you shall not. But there was a promise in those Old Testament scriptures that a new covenant was coming at the appointed time. Many have talked at a time where humanity could wrap its head around this, where it would go from out there to in here. The fire that fell from heaven ends up being the fire in our very spirits by the presence of his Holy Spirit. He goes, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my commandments and keep them. And I will cleanse you from your idols and I will make you clean. I'm going to write my law on your heart. It's not something you live up to in your own strength. It's something that you live out with my power. And this is the moment at Pentecost when all of this happens. It's the grand power and presence of God come to live in you. This is where God's in the room and starts to show up. Now we get glimpses of this in the Old Testament. We're reassured that God's presence is everywhere. But at Pentecost, man, it's that day that all these prophecies point towards where like, it's not just like there's something lit out there. It's like everybody gets lit. Shout out to legalization of, no, it's okay. When Jesus bursts on the scene, Jesus is bringing a revelation of the tangible presence of God called the kingdom of God, and he says it's in your midst. The omnipresence of God is known, and it's real, and it's true. Think of it like this. It's the difference between having a millionaire show up in our church and being in the back pew, and then the difference between that, like there's a, hey, there's like a billionaire in the room. I think that looks like Elon. And, and, and then having that billionaire pull out his phone and text 77977. You follow me? 
God's like been in the room. They've had the sense that God is here. There's a billion in the room. But it's actually, there's a difference between being in the room and then showing that you're in the room. The omnipresence is God in the room, but the manifest presence is God showing us that he's there. This is what's happening with the birth of the church, the manifest presence of God. It's more than just a deep awareness of the God that's everywhere. It is transformational, not just theological. It's particular and not just general. It's personal, and thus it requires a pursuit, and it requires a hunger. It's covenantal, which means it's deeply relational, and it's specific. Anyone grow up around a church? Anyone grow up with the phrase, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I, for so long, have kind of pushed back against that language. Not because it's implicitly bad. It's just not in the Bible specifically. And so in my, like, younger years of wanting to make sure I right the theological wrongs of the generation I was raised in, I say that with, like, sarcasm in my tone, I, I've realized going through this passage again and again it's not that bad, the personal relationship with Jesus. This is in so many ways what's happening. This sense of the impersonal God that we're not quite sure what it's like comes and makes himself known to us. One of the most distinct features of the way of Jesus is that it claims to say, would you like to know what God is like? It's not a mystery anymore. Look at Jesus. And better than that, Jesus says, actually, it's better than if I can empower you and every person on earth who says yes and trust that I am king reigning over all, I will send my spirit to them. And that actually there is a personal relationship as much as a communal one that begins to form. Look, all of this leads us to this word that you've heard a lot around sanctuary, which is encounter. You can encounter the Lord. It's personal and it's manifest. And that means you don't need a special system of priests and leaders and sacrifice to access the manifest presence of God. That's what Sarah was talking about a moment ago. It can happen right here. It can happen right now. God's in the room and he's available. And if he's hungry, he will meet you. This is the good news of the first part of Acts chapter 2. God answers with fire. And that distant fire we read about in the Old Testament becomes one that sits on the head of every person present. Jesus tells us again about this in John 14. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus, says, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also live. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Pentecost is about the celebration of an ambiguous spirit or force coming home. It's the celebration of Jesus's ongoing presence among us. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. In Acts, the general idea of God becomes a radical encounter with one. Um, anyone who plays Blaise Pascal is? Big deal. Look him up. Big deal. Thinker, inventor, writer, philosopher. Towards the end, I mean, like, big, big deal. That's not to make you feel bad if you don't know who he is. It's just get a better education. Kidding. Kidding. Blaise Pascal, great guy. Towards the end of his life, 
all of the brilliance in his mind melted into a personal encounter with God. And on one night, this is what happened. Like the general idea of God becomes a radical encounter with him. Shortly after his death in 1662, a housekeeper was sorting through closets and clothing and happened to notice something sewn in Pascal's coat. Beneath the cloth was a parchment, and inside this was another faded piece of paper. In Pascal's handwriting, on both the parchment and the paper were nearly the same words beside hand-drawn crosses. Pascal had carefully written, The Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, comma, fire, period. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is, the only fa- he is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world was not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, uh, will my God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught by the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus Christ. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. What? You're like, "Ah, did you read that right, Andrew? This is like like philosopher thinking in tongues. That was funnier than it was. I made a little note. People will laugh here. I'm kidding. (laughs) This is one of the world's most brilliant thinkers having an encounter with the presence of God. So he has this radical encounter with God. And where does his housekeeper find it? And this is key for us. They found that he had taken this encounter with the Holy Spirit and sewed it in his coat. So it always covered his heart. It's like he said, I want to take that experience and I want to convert that into a lifestyle. I don't want that to just be a memory of my younger years. I want that to be a living reality in my life. Richard Owen Roberts says, The sobering truth is that the greatest hindrance to the growth of Christianity in today's world is the absence of the manifest presence of God from the church. Imagine showing up to church and not meeting God. What a concept, and yet it happens all the time. That's the very thing you should be doing is meeting God and encountering his presence. In the Old Testament, Moses said, if your presence doesn't go up with us, we're not going to leave. And then he asked the question, how else will the nations know? How will the world know? Now, for any of you who have a little bit of biblical literacy, you know that there's all sorts of ways that people know that his people are his people. They've got like the whole circumcision thing. They've got all sorts of ethical codes and all sorts of dietary laws and ways that you organize a family. There are a million sociological ways that you can distinguish one group from another. 
with human culture. And Moses goes, that's not the secret. That's not the sauce. That's not the stuff. If we are not presence people, people marked by the presence, we're not your people. Any of you who have been around church, you, I would bet the house that you know when you're with somebody who's been with the Father. It's like you're with someone who's just like, like abundantly kind. Somebody who seems to be able to speak into your life. It's not just somebody who's like perfect. It's somebody who carries a weight and authority. It's the kind of person when you're around them, you're like, I want to be more like that. And you find that what that person has done has simply spent time again and again with God and had an encounter with him. Verse 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. All right, this is amazing. Peter goes from somebody who denies Jesus when a teenage girl is like, aren't you a follower? And he swears he doesn't know Jesus. To someone who's willing to stand up in the same city just a little time later and preach to the religious leaders saying, you guys killed the Messiah. Unbelievably, unbelievable boldness and courage. What on earth happened? What happened? Peter didn't like get a little pep talk and then have a good night's sleep and have some kale and then like, I don't know, feel like, no, no, I'm good. I can do this. He didn't have like lifestyle tweaks. These weren't little anxiety reductions for his personality. He had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. He, he, he He just said, God, would you come? Spirit came. He was humbled. Peter was jacked up, a mess, hypocritical, and had just denied knowing Jesus. I don't care how bad you think he, like you are right now. It doesn't get much worse than that. God's gracious and beautiful, humble. He like looks for the humble in heart. And he pours his spirit out. On Peter is hungry and knows that he needs him, and it changes everything. The power he needed from that encounter became available for him to witness. You got teenage fishermen becoming apostolic martyrs to the ends of the earth because they were empowered by the Spirit to do the mission of God. And I want to say to us, wherever you are in your life, you need fresh power for the mission of God. If we're to go another 10 years, we need fresh power. I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how well you have walked. If we are going to be an effective church for the decade to come, we need a fresh encounter with the Spirit. We as a church don't have the power that we need for this cultural moment. We don't. I was walking around the grounds of a camp that I've, I've mentioned a number of times called Keswick that I went to. as a first a kid and then in high school and then I was a counselor at. I learned later just how jacked up like the culture leadership was during certain seasons, not the whole time. (laughs) But it was like, wow, God was so forgiving and beautiful in a camp that was underfunded and had some leadership challenges at the top. Like how many people who went through that camp today are in ministry who are raising like powerful families of God. And um, I was up in that area in Western Mass for a wedding two weekends ago with Corey, just Corey and I got away and I wanted desperately to show her this campground because she knows how much it's meant to me. And as I'm walking across this grass, like every, looking from everything from like, there's archery and some of the play, things were still in the same place. And like, there's like where the nurses like station was and 
And this is the little, like, the brook that runs down the property. And we went down to the lake. And I just, God began to, like, remind me of all the things that he had done. And then one of the last places that I took her was this little chapel up on the hill. And I peeked in. And I, I mean, I'm talking about this now. I don't want to cry. I mean, it was like everything in my body. I was so full of joy. I wasn't like in that like somber crying moment, but I was like ready to just kind of burst into tears. It was like coming out as like skittish, giddy energy. And, and all I could like kind of fumble to try to say as I like ran over to where the drum kit still was and went, Corey, take a picture of me on the drum kit that I used to like play like 20 years ago. And I, I just thought the amount of incredible encounters with the spirit of God that I've had in this place, my calling was discovered here. By the way, it's not really to preach. It's just to lead worship, so I'm out of my calling right now. Forgive this sermon. Like, to lead. God called out, like, some of the brokenness, like, in my mind. God delivered my brother. Like, delivered him from, like, such freaking evil this one little place, there were these encounters of God that shook everything and shook a little pocket of my friends. And many of us talk about this place, like, we got to do a reunion up there because it was like for the, I, I can't imagine like what my life would be like without those encounters. Maybe you have some monuments, some Ebenezer's, some spaces, some thin places of your own where you've encountered the Lord. And we started our church. It started as this worship service that sort of like was birthing an outreach project and almost became a nonprofit. And it's this fumbling thing with my own calling and vision. And then we, we start meeting in a little art gallery space right next to White Electric over on the west side. And though there was hunger, there really was, it was birthed as a really a, just a place to worship. There was something missing. And a few years in, I had a revelation that was reinforced by a, in a, by a number of different ways by colleagues and friends and mentors. And the revelation was basically this, Andrew, you're doing great, planting churches and all that. Like, as the years went on, there was a lot of pats on the back and we're doing okay. Look at you and like Providence, Rhode Island, doing what we're doing. And, and our team was feeling really encouraged. And, but, but the feedback that sort of kept coming in different ways, both subtly and then once directly, was where's the power? You're doing brand management for Jesus. Where's the power of God? Everything you're setting out to do, you can accomplish, Andrew, in your own power and your own gifting. You've got a really amazing team. You guys can pull this thing off. It was this revelation that there's more performance than power and more technique and leadership dynamics. And it just put me on my face. And it made me, this is a couple years ago, it made me realize how much you can get done in the modern church without the power of God. You guys track it with me? This isn't like a racing like our 10. There's so many beautiful stories that we're going to tell over the next six months of the way God has met us. Personal renewal and revival. I'm just talking about as a whole, our fam. There were some things, many of you weren't even around for any of this. But I need to share this part of the story because it's actually really, really critical. Because there, there is this um, invitation that kind of emerges from the text in the back half of Acts 2. Because in that moment, it was like God saying, what got you here is not going to bring you into the future that I have for you. And I tell you that there have been some sweet seasons, again, over the last few years. Fresh joy, spirit, like just times of renewal. 
Some of the first seeks we've had over the last four or five years have been absolutely powerful and amazing. We've had these moments, like I'm thinking, where's Emily? Like Emily, we've had like these moments of like, like felt like, oh, we were like kind of touching heaven for a second and, and it kind of slowed down, that was okay. This isn't about chasing a spiritual experience, but these moments of like great life and joy. And I think the realization as I was trying to button some of this up for today, why I'm sharing all of this, is that if Acts 2 shows us that we need power, we actually need to build tangible practices so that the power of God can move into the mission of God. Look at what it says in Acts 42, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Epic moment has just happened in the church. Like the greatest worship service of all time has just taken place. Ecstatic joy, people speaking in tongues, all that stuff that you're like, no, not for me. That's too much. Like, it all happened in the Bible. <laughs> I'm with you, by the way. I'm getting there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give it to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their houses. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is fascinating. The wind and fire poured into shared discipleship practices in the church. In essence, they had the power, but they didn't have the container to sustain them. And so all the wind and fire had to be turned into teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer and generosity. Think of marriage. You fall in love. There's like all this power. You get zapped. I mean, literally, it kind of tracks along pretty well. You feel like you're drunk. C.S. Lewis said, man, falling in love is, is like, is, it's, it's like that in, weird thing, crazy, insane thing. It's the only thing that can compel someone to do something so insane as to commit their lives to someone else for the rest of their life. <laughs> someone laughed. <laughs> it's like, yup. Like, what else could make you do something crazy like committing to someone for the rest of their life? It's that in loveness. It's that power. It's that drunkenness. It's that feeling swept up. But a good marriage won't be one surviving on, like, wedding day vibes. You channel that power into daily and monthly and yearly rhythms into how you're going to live. And you keep having high moments and in love moments. This isn't a perfect analogy, I know. But these moments where you experience the power of your in-loveness and what it does, it catalyzes you then into a way of living that out and channeling that day in and day out. We've got to have in our church for the next 10 years the kind of discipleship that can handle the power of God. And I think in part, God is calling us to a season not just of seeking his power, but of preparation. And preparation means we have a shared way that we practice the way of Jesus together which is what we spent most of this winter talking about. Ultimately, the church's call is not just spiritual experiences, though, again, I love and I honor those. Man, those are the sweet things. Heart in two weeks, by the way, worship night here. So excited. But the ultimate mission of the church is that those experiences, those encounters with God are translated into maturity and health and into discipleship. Neil Cole says this, ultimately, each church 
will only be evaluated by one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching programs, or property are if your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience. If they're not doing those things, your church ain't good. I didn't say it. Neil Cole said it. This is so fascinating to me because we have so many programs in the Western church and we have so much content and we have so little transformation. You got people like walking out the door because they were never formed in the way of Jesus. Jesus remains super compelling. We're just not helping people live out and practice that way of life that actually leads them to intimate personal encounter and thus the overflow of power. It's a circle. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Because we need lifestyles, lifestyles that can sustain the power of God and invite more of him. Dallas Willard says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the conditions we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. The gifts of the Spirit are not a substitute for holiness. We don't want to say the power of God poured out in gatherings is enough for personal devotion. It's not we need teaching. We need teaching, right? We need to live in a culture. We live in a culture of lies, so we need the truth to reveal who Jesus is. We need fellowship and learning to love one another because we live in a time of cultural division where we're villainizing and damning one another and demonizing one another instead of loving one another. We need to break bread together and open our homes to get rid of cynicism and the hostility so we actually learn to love one another like Jesus said. And we need prayer these things listed out in Acts 2, to be turned into an, not just to in one encounter, but into a lifestyle of seeking God where there's actually devotion. We need to be people formed into the image of Jesus. Power is good, but formation is better. And there is no formation without repetition. We are not going to become like Jesus, alive and full of wonder and joy without a game plan. We know this. We know this. We don't start praying. If you are like seriously overweight, we don't just go, Lord Jesus, would you please like just, just take off 150 pounds right now? Like would you, we don't just pray, like would that weight fall off in a moment? No, because if God doesn't address a vision of a healthy person, all that's going to happen is you put that all on again over the course of time. It's the same thing with money. We can pray, God, I need a miracle. But if we don't learn to steward our finances that God's given us over the course of time, we'll go back into debt. If we're always complaining and we don't have enough time and we pray like, God, would you pour out a miracle to make up for our laziness? God may fix it because he's kind for a moment, but over the course of time, he won't because he wants to develop us into mature people. We have to reject. This is all I'm saying. We have to reject this zap view of spiritual growth. The Bible says we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, keep on being filled with the Spirit, and it also says we have to train ourselves to be godly. And so we need the balance of both of these things in our life. We need 
as my buddy John says, practices that cannot be dismissed, theology that cannot be dismissed with power that cannot be denied. Paul, man, Paul could preach philosophy to the leading intellects of his day. Paul could walk into a meeting and see faith. Paul wrote Ephesians. It's not a bad book, right? Not bad theology. God clearly had a mind. You know, and then he also is turning around and praying and healing the sick, seamlessly integrated. These are the sorts of disciples that we need in our day. Power will bring a culture in the next 10 years of sanctuary of encounter, of passion, of anointing, of breakthrough, of urgency, of movement, of gifts. And practice will bring formation and discipline and faithfulness and process and skills and sustainability and health and character. This is what we need to see the fame and deeds of God renewed in our time. Now, I want to say this cautiously. I promise we're wrapping up. I know we're going late today. Do you know how rare it is in the modern American church to have churches like this? I think it's one of the enemy's greatest strategies because he realizes that if these things come together, power and practices, they will be an unstoppable force. And so he uses division and he uses theological debates and he uses dominant personalities. He does everything within his power to keep these things from coming together. Because he knows they're so potent and so sanctuary. We are one of those rare churches. I feel permission to say this because I, you know me hopefully well enough to know I am not some triumphant preacher. And I have no delusions of grandeur about our community. We are one of these kinds of churches. And let me be very clear. We are seeing them pop up all over this nation. God is raising up churches like ours, similar to ours further along and further behind, but in the same stream of going, we need good and healthy discipleship and practices and a shared way of life that is counterculture to the world. And we need the spirit of God, the power of God. My question today for all of us and myself included is, are we going to live into the thing that our church carries? Are we going to be open and hungry to build this kind of community for the next 10 years? This card here just says our path that we spent five weeks, just a few weeks ago, going through the way we think about following Jesus, the upward direction being with him, the inward direction becoming like him, the outward direction doing what he did, the withward direction doing that together. We marked out some practices, some ways that are going to mark us out about how we're going to roll in this next season. And these may change as culture changes, as we change. But I want to invite you, if you're someone who's like, I'm, I'm part of this family, wherever you're at on the journey, to take one of these cards and then take this. This is what we're going to affectionately call, I got really creative with this title. Ready for it? The block. That's right. Someone getting excited back there. And so the idea that this block would sit on your countertop somewhere 
I need to remember, oh, this is what it is to walk the way of Jesus in this family. There's like base practices, stretch practices. I'm not going to go off through this. There's a number of places you can access this, and we're going to keep coming back to this. But we wanted to put this in your hands today on this Pentecost Sunday. Because we need to have a plan. We need to have a plan. I want to close by just telling a story. I don't want you to think of these people as far away and unlike you. I want you to think of them as people just like you in a place just like this. There were these uh, folks called the Moravians under a guy named Zinzendorf. Those of you about to have a child, there's a name. They integrated practice and power in one of the most dynamic communities in church history that I've ever read about. Zinzendorf was a German noble actually um, inherited this piece of land in the 1700s from his grandmother. All sorts of religious and cultural persecution were happening. There were these refugees who were fleeing, and a group of them with all these different theological backgrounds ended up on this land, sort of camping there. And they asked Zinzendorf, can we settle there? And what happened was is a village was built. And he'd welcomed everybody in and be honored to have you. A person of tremendous wealth, tremendous privilege, and ends up basically creating a community around the book of Acts in this first chapter. And he took what he had, and he used it on behalf of those who had needs. But this community was tremendously divided, tremendously divided. All this persecution and suffering, he was thinking would bind them all together. They were all fleeing these really broken ideologies. And he thought, man, when everyone's getting persecuted together, that'll like create such a bond of unity. But there was still so much difference there was like theological fractures that were pulling them apart. And so instead of binding, being bonded together in their trauma, they were divided because, they're, because of their theology and their way of seeing the world. And Zinzendorf was like, in what way is this division honoring God? Can't we unite on anything? And so he went door to door over a period of weeks pleading with people, a couple hundred people. He would go door to door saying, can't we put our differences aside and unite in Jesus? The fire of God will never fall on a divided order. Let's unite. Yeah, let's unite. So he won the hearts of everybody in the community. They got together on August 13th, 1727 for a communion service. And after everybody who had united their hearts and the, the presence of God fell, they had a prayer service, worship service. They did heart, 1700s versions of heart. And the presence of God fell during that communion time. And they said there was a period of like 12 or 13 hours where they literally could not tell if they were in heaven or on earth. The veil was torn, and they felt like there in the overlap of the ages, God had just poured out his spirit. It was like every time they felt like a wave of his presence was about to fade away, another one came. Just deep and overwhelming supernatural encounter. And they began to ask the question, God, why did you do this? Now, that's a great question. Now, I want to say this just about this place in Germany. What happened here was not a strategic location. Think Coventry, Rhode Island. Think Rhode Island in general. Not a strategic location. But you know what? God comes where? Where does God come? He comes where he's wanted. He comes where he's wanted. 
hunger draws God in and the Holy Spirit came. So they had this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then they ask, what do we do with it? How do we steward it? And they said, well, the fire can't go out on the altar. So they did this 24-7 prayer time, literally just seeking the Lord, scheduling people to be praying in different shifts for days and days and weeks and months on end. They had so much power, but they also had so much practice. They were able to sustain this for 100 years. And any time it would begin to wane, the spirit of prayer would come on the children and they'd say, we're going to, we, we need to live like God called us to live. And the children would be filled with the burden of the Spirit of God. And when they had this prayer culture, then they said, well, what's all of this for? And then God began to speak to them and say, we're going to be people who go and bring Jesus' message to the end of the world. And this was right around the time that new pathways of travel were breaking out around the world. And they said, we live in a strategic moment where we could get the gospel from Germany to the ends of the earth. Let's go after it. And so they heard about an island that was in the British Isles. And in order to get to this island, you had to be a slave. Like nobody else was allowed to go there. And so two young men said, we're going to sell ourselves into slavery to bring the gospel to these people. And if you read the accounts, it is absolutely extraordinary. You've got this community gathering, and as the men sail off, they say, quote, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And they just sell themselves into slavery, and they go. They go on that island, and they witness, and a staggering revival. Over 2,000 people come to Christ, and it becomes this model community. This tiny little church. Power comes. But when they build structures to contain that power in a way of life, then that power turns into momentum and mission and formation. Well, as one of the communities is bringing a missions movement over to the United States, they're on a ship. There's this terrible storm, and they feel like the storm's going to destroy the ship. There happens to be this passenger on the ship named John Wesley, who, again, is kind of a big deal within the church. John Wesley is coming over to America to do missions. He said he realized on that ship that the Moravians had something he did not have, which was peace with God, and it haunted him. So he comes to America. He's a total flop, total failure. He comes back to England, and he starts asking what the Moravians have that I don't. And if you read about the conversion of John Wesley, the conversion happens where he says he's reading like an introduction to an epistle, to a piece of scripture, and his heart was, quote, strangely warm. Do you know who is having that Bible study? Can you guess? The Moravians. He goes to Moravian Bible study because they have power, but they have practices as well. And the Moravians would do this all-night prayer watches. And at one night on New Year's Eve, there was about 60 of these Moravian men praying together. And there was a young man then named John Wesley. But then there was another guy there named George Whitfield, who's another big deal. George Whitfield is there, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, the presence of God comes down, and they're all filled with this fresh filling. And then Whitfield comes over to the United States, starts preaching with power and authority, and sparks one of the greatest awakenings in American history that Providence was also privy to. That happened because 60 Moravians hosted a prayer meeting. I'm going to keep going. William Carey, who's known as the father of modern missions, was actually trying to work against a very aggressive uh, thinking in the church, this aggressive Calvinism that said you do not need to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so he keeps hearing these stories and reports of the Moravians. So he goes to this Baptist society, throws down these Moravian reports, and he says, why can't we reach the lost like the Moravians? 
So he goes to India and pioneers the modern missionary movement among the Baptists. And this happens because some Moravians have power and they have practices to sustain what God's done in their midst. I'm going to keep going. William Wilberforce is in Parliament raging against slavery. And one of the arguments they make to William Wilberforce is that they can't release the slaves because they'll turn and just kill all their masters. And Wilberforce hears about an island where 2,000 slaves had come to Jesus in a revival and they're living at peace with one another and working in their conditions in God-honoring ways. So Wilberforce is able to point to these two young Moravian men who sold themselves into slavery and started that revival as a reference point to Parliament to overthrow overthrow slavery in the British Empire. So let's do a quick recap here. Little church, 300 people, middle of nowhere, have an encounter with the presence of God, but they build a container, practices, a way of life to hold that presence. They become disciplined. They become hungry for the presence of God. And it extends to mission all over the world. And they spark one of the greatest revivalists in history, John Wesley. They inspire one of the greatest evangelists in history, George Whitfield. They inspire one of the greatest missionaries in history, William Carey. They inspire one of the greatest politicians in history who worked for the demolition of slavery in the world, William Wilberforce. And all of this comes out of a tiny 300-person community. Here's the point I want to say. Do you see how potent power and practice is when it comes together in a community? And I have one question for us. Do you want to be a church like that? Do we want to be a church like that? Do we want it? Man, I was like going to make this service an hour long so we could just get to the picnic and celebrate. I'm so glad we're not. I know there's a lot of people in our family and leaders that aren't even here today, and this isn't the whole of our church. I know that. I know a lot of us are checking our clock and hot. I'm thinking about nursery workers downstairs who are going to start to get a little annoyed at me. Here's why I mention all that. If I could focus us for one moment here. Do we want this? If it's yes, would you just say yes? Do we want this? Do we want, do we, do we want to, to be a church that is alive and effective and potent if there's a word to hold on to? If we're going to choose to say yes, we have to build a lifestyle of discipline and discipleship that can carry the fire that I'm trusting God's going to keep pouring out in such a way that it doesn't burn us out. And we're not going to get so caught up in discipline and practices that you stop hungering for the power of God and think that you can just take it from here in our own power because we're organized, because we have more staff, because we're growing power and practice is a is what happens power and practice is what happens when a church wakes up to the reality of God in their midst why do you think you are here now you think you're here 
like I'm speaking to all of us, like to slowly manage the decline of the church in New England. Does anybody want that vision? Let's slowly manage the decline of the church together, team. You good? No! No! We are here for this moment. This is why this refrain, in our time, in this place, why that verse, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Do it again. You've done it before. Do it again. This is why this continues to drive us and shape us and form us. We are here for this moment, and God just wants to know if you're willing to say yes. I am saying yes today all over again. I'm saying yes to this time. And it doesn't need to be big. And I'm not chasing an experience. And I'm not being triumphant. I just want to be potent. And if the church has got to whittle down to 12 people for us to be potent, let it be so. But let us be alive. And let it be said, when anyone walks through the doors of our church or doors of our home church, or doors of an outpost, or into a girls' Bible study, or into a preteen boys' squad, or into a mission night. When they walk into those spaces, they're like, the Lord is surely in this place. These people love God. Might it be said about us. Here we are, Lord. Here we are, Lord. Here we are, Lord. Send us. So I want to invite us in our negative few minutes remaining. <laughs> take the other side of that card. Just take a moment. Invite the Holy Spirit to speak. If that one side of the card was for like, what do you want to see in the church writ large? What does God want to do in your heart? Ten years from now, what are you sensing God's inviting you to do? Maybe it's something you need to lay down. Maybe it's some commitment. Maybe more than anything, just asking the Lord to provoke our imagination, to say, Lord, who are you inviting me to become? And just write that prayer out. Come, Spirit, come. I don't want to move forward into the next years as an individual or as an individual, a part of this church. I don't, I don't want to do that unless you'll come. I don't want to do that unless you come. I don't want to do that unless you come.